Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. Today, we are looking at some moments from the large cantata, Ich hatte viel Bekümmernis. This is the first of two episodes we'll spend on this marvelous work, and it's got 11 movements. Really, I would feel good about it if we did 11 episodes, because <laughs> it has that much good stuff in it. We're always saying on this podcast that we we want to do more, but we, just for the variety's sake, we won't do that to you guys. But I, I will say that this was suggested to us by a listener, Eliezer, and she suggested that we do an episode focusing on the chorale movements of this work. So what we've decided to do is spend two episodes on this work. Today, we're going to look at some of the other movements and some of my favorite moments within those. And there are so many, but I will narrow it down to a few favorites. And then next week, we will take a look at Eliezer's favorite moment from movement two, and talk a little bit about those two movements, movements two and six, the chorale movements, which are really at the heart of this work. This being a larger work, it starts out with a movement that's purely instrumental, basically an introduction to get us in the mood of things without hearing any words yet. So if you listen to some of this, I think you can catch the mood even though I haven't told you at all what this cantata is about. The first two lines of this cantata are, When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. And that is one translation from the New International Version of the Bible from Psalm 94:19, which is the verse that this is from. But you know, there's lots of different ways to translate that text. Um, our listener Eliezer, who speaks Hebrew, has told us that it could be more precisely translated to "When there are a lot of bad thoughts within me." Listen to that tension that's happening here. Even in the first measure, you can hear that the violin one part and the oboe parts have a dissonance as soon as they both enter. The oboe enters after on a dissonant note. This sort of crunchy dissonance will carry us through most of this cantata until we get to the end when a little bit of of joy and comfort radiates through. You know, these cantatas are always named after the very first line of text, but it doesn't always convey everything that the cantata is about. There's a duality happening in this work between that sense of anxiety 
uh, and stress and relief and joy. There's a duality there and the work ultimately ends with a joyful movement. So, sorry to spoil the ending for you there, but it, it waits until movement 11 to bring in the trumpets and timpani for a festive final, final movement. So it ends in joy. So the duality between those two is apparent in everything about this work. And there is also the duality of character in that there are basically two characters. There's me, the narrator, right? The first person. Yeah, which is usually considered the soul. And it is the soul. Yeah. Yeah. The one whose heart is troubled with, with bad thoughts. And this person, which is us, the human, is sighing and sorrowful and ha- even has a recitative of uh, where they say why have you forsaken me basically <laughs> then later this changes I'll let you get into it Alex but another character enters <laughs> And like you said at the end, Alex, all is made well, which now that you say it, this is remarkable because not all the cantatas are like this. Right. A lot of them conform to the Baroque idea of an an overall tone and affect and have their own smaller affects within them. This one almost has a development where it changes as it goes. It goes goes Old Testament to New Testament. It's It's like the most, of any of the cantatas, it's like the most summarizing of the bible you know it's got psalms in it it's got the uh, the sort of lamentations going on in it it has it does have some of the the best old testament settings um, but but also alex the character moves from despair to rejoicing by the end yeah. and this is a sort of um linear development that is not common in baroque music unless we're talking about some sort of story thing like an opera so Bach, Bach is really going for it here with a, a concept that's not, not. Um, he didn't have to, you know, he didn't have to do something that had this this level of progression, right? And in terms of when it gets used in the church year, even though it had a specific date that it was written for, which was the third Sunday after Trinity, it doesn't really matter. It could be used any time. Bach himself even wrote that. He cataloged it like that. He wrote it that it would be acceptable for all times in the church here because of its general themes, right? Hmm. But yeah, it tells a story. I mean, we I think all the most powerful music does. And we've always talked about how when Bach sets text, he's always trying to tell that story in the text. And here he just, he has so much rich, wording here to be setting the text. Christian, you mentioned the soul and Jesus. Well, way back in episode three of our first season, we talked about Vakit Auf. And in Vakit Auf, that's what it's all about, right? The soul in dialogue with Jesus. And he usually sets that with a soprano and bass duet, where the bass is Jesus and the soprano soloist is the soul or us, right? And this sort of masculine and feminine duality of that is straight from the Bible because in the Bible, the church is a lot of times referred to um, as female and because it's like 
Christ's bride, right? Yeah, it's which is what metaphor. the bucket off thing is yeah. all about. Yeah, the metaphor is is really clear there. Mm -hmm. And that that soprano and bass duet that happens in this is one of the best of those. It starts with a recitative that like it's basically an intro where the soul is despairing and they're not in agreement yet because the soul she is uh, she's not understanding how jesus could solve these problems basically right she's saying that there's only night there's no there is only darkness there's light and then it becomes a plea it becomes sort of what you hear in the psalms a lot it becomes a plea to Jesus to restore. This specifically to Jesus here, um, which, like, you know, the Psalms would be a plea to God, but here is a plea to Jesus uh, to restore and with grace specifically. But the part that I love about this movement here, and if you're listening in, this is movement eight, where um, in despair, the soprano soloist is singing about the soul or herself that must die. But every time she says that it must die, Jesus responds with, it must live. It's always a, there's always a balance, there's always a duality. She says, it must not live, and he says, it must not die. And then she says, from its misfortune, you know, from our soul's misfortune, but then Jesus is saying, rescuing from that. You know, he's saying that he will rescue from that. And then she keeps on saying, I'm lost, I'm lost. And Christ keeps saying, no, you're chosen. I've I found you. You know, it's like, it's amazing. Just this, this hmm. duality here. I love that. And then finally, she's saying, she can't, she can't understand why he would love her, right? She says, no, you hate me. And he says, I love you. And he, they just keep on going in, in this sort of argument, basically, until she's convinced that Christ will restore her. And even though this sounds kind of like sappy romantic, it's actually kind of, it's actually exactly what the like theological doctrine of redemption is all about, right? It is that the soul is not deserving of that grace. We get it anyway because of the great love that God has for us, right? So that's what this is all about. And you know, any modern pop song that's that's romantic, that's about romantic love between two humans, right? Is is kind of a shadow compared to this like this sort of like gloriously religious version of love. You know what I mean? And and I think like from a Christian perspective, the sort of like pop song romance is just like is the reason why it like kind of hits you in the, in the heart like that is because it's all basically a inferior version of actual indescribably huge love that God has you know what I mean so that's just I just think that's that's what's shown here it's also a little bit um, similar to the Jewish perspective too the different the only difference being whether or not that messiah has already come i guess you could sure, say sure uh, because this this whole obviously um there are patently christian things about this this cantata 
but most of it you could take three movements out and then the rest of it could actually function completely old testament right. old testament wise but even the uh, even the duet stuff even the idea like you're saying alex of the love metaphor of the wedding metaphor in a duet could still be between um between the person and their god or the person and their savior their messiah as well sure So as I've been skipping around, I want to go backwards to movement three, which is the first aria. That's a soprano aria, which means it's our soul again. And this movement, the first line of the four lines of words, is Seufzer, Tränen, Kummer, Not, which means sighing, tears, grief, and distress. And I love these ones that are just like lists of nouns, you know, it's so great because he can do a lot with the uh, the emotion that's inherent in those words. It doesn't have to be a sentence. It's just it's just angsty words that he gets to set in really angsty music, right? And in this one, I just this oboe. First of all, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know. With these arias, he starts with a solo instrument, or sometimes it's a group of instruments, but he starts with an instrumental introduction, right? That's what you're getting, plus continuo underneath, which is the bass stuff. And that's that's no different here. But this one is special for me, and that is because I had a breakthrough with this particular aria when I first listened to this. And I will tell you what, I, I've listened to hundreds of Bach arias, and this one is when I had my revelation. You know what that is, Christian? No. It is that I've always thought, okay, there's an instrumental introduction, and then the voice comes in. And of course, the voice comes in with the melody, right? But then I thought, that's not, that's not really what's happening. You know, we always talk about how the instrument and the voice are in conversation with each other in these arias. Hmm. My revelation is that the instrument part is always the melody. And the the voice part, it either it either does the melody also, or at a separate time, or it's just harmony. Like, it's not... I always just I always just assumed the voice part was like the true melody, you know what I mean? But then mm. after I realized this, I looked back at a ton of other arias, and I realized it's always the same. The instrumental introduction is the exposition of the actual melody of the aria. The voice part is like almost extra if you take it out it still works without it almost every time except for some solo moments where it's just voice and continuum usually the first phrase is the same usually the first phrase is the same but if you were to take like so those moments where the instrument rests mm -hmm. which is usually right at the beginning of the solo right mm -hmm. the voice solo if you were to just put that in the instrument instead then change the instrument part to, or change the vo voice part to another instrument or whatever 
I mean, you could do whatever you want with it because he writes the vocal parts like they're instruments anyway. So you could always just play it on an instrument. It wouldn't be faithful to the original, but it still makes sense, of course. Yeah, so that's, but, a, that's a good point. And um, that does actually arguably distinguish Bach from other composers. Yeah. Even, even Baroque composers. Yeah, but, absolutely. But also just if you just think about the whole philosophy of, of the singer carrying the tune and Bach is going contrary to that is kind of subverting that because he's not trying to be he's not trying to be interesting or or clever he's just doing it all in service of of something greater right he the the voice isn't enough to express the thing the voice isn't enough for Bach he needs needs the instrument to be to be that too we've talked about this before when the instrument has a a lot more florid of stuff sometimes than the voice can handle because the instrument is really like the emotion is really the the movement, you know? Yeah, and so many other composers like Vivaldi or Mozart probably considered the vocal melody to reign supreme over everything. So, yeah, and, and like a Vivaldi aria might have that instrumental introduction feel like an introduction. Yeah. Whereas with Bach, it feels like the main material. Yep. And that's that is a difference. That's what I'm saying. And I, I just never really looked at it when it's just I, I just changed perspective, you know. Yeah. And now that I can see it that way, it's it's making me see all the other arias in that light. The moment that I figured that out was the entrance of the voice in this movement and then when the oboe came back in right right there because mm-hmm. here's how the very beginning sounds with the oboe so you just heard that first little phrase now here's how the voice part sounds as it enters Now here's the oboe again. Okay, pause. Now that is the same thing. That's the intro again, right? Sounds like the oboe is just repeating it, right? Like echoing it. But now think about it this way. The oboe has the real melody here. And the reason I know it is because in the next measure, when the oboe has the ascending part, this. That was from the intro. We already heard that. He doesn't give that to the voice here. No. It's in the oboe part again. And it is spread out, almost like giving the voice room to narrate the actual words, Mm -hmm. but letting the oboe have the actual melody. Yeah, I think when Bach does these things with these arias, he's giving the words to the singer, and he's giving the flavor of the emotion to the, primarily to the instrument. Of course, the singer is like a lot of times in dialogue with it, and it definitely works emotionally. It's still important, but I do think of it as a secondary thing. Well, we'll see if that really bears true if I listen to all the other cantatas, or all the other arias from the other cantatas hmm. again. 
but it isn't it is a new perspective that just hit me basically uh just listening to this yeah i, I wonder if being in complete and utter service to the text of something and the in instrumental power that bach has is something that some singers don't like because it kind of takes them out of the spotlight yeah certainly the netherlands bach society has contracted so many singers that totally get it you know how mm -hmm. to sing bach and i think that's that's going to be part of it and i'm not accusing um singers as a whole of making this mistake but surely it's something they'd have to learn right they yeah. have to come to that realization either by themselves or by their voice teacher or someone to figure out this is the only way to approach this correctly every bach aria is a duet yeah, that's my thesis statement. At about least, that. I mean, sometimes it's like <laughs> sometimes one it's more. instrument and two voices. Sometimes two it's more than a one voice. Yeah. My point is, every Bach aria is a conversation between the voice and the instrument, and I think the instrument is usually the primary voice. You know, Alex. Also, this is why Bach has so many things like the Orgelbuchlein and all these settings of religious text music that is completely instrumental, and that's just that's not a weird thing. Because that's just so yep. natural for him. Because I think that was his preferred method of expression, um, or at least minute by minute of all the music he wrote that makes up the most, plus the arias and the recitatives. Whereas the things that are only a chorus, uh, or only the voice alone expressing something, those are shorter. That's true. By minute by minute comparison. And, and usually with choral movements that aren't that aren't just the straight chorales but the the choral movements that are a little more complicated like what we have here in this cantata and movement two and six usually in those he still allows the the higher instrumental parts to shine in some way whether by like extending these fugues to include the instruments and there's a there's a great example in this cantata of that or by just giving them extra material but fugue wise there's something that happens in this cantata that i love it is in the sixth movement and We'll talk more about this movement next week, but there's a fugue there that starts with altos. Then by the time you get the four voices going, he then moves to the oboe and has that enter, and then violin one, and then violin two, and then viola, yep. And then soon we've got a, a fugue that's going with more parts. Now, even though the voice parts have exited by the time all those instruments are in, he later brings everybody in. So there's so many great things in this. And like I said, there's a bunch to talk about next week. We're going to focus especially on our listener Eliezer's favorite moment from Movement 2 and some of the other some of the other things that her interesting perspective will bring us. But before we end, I got to go to the final movement here. I made notes on every movement, and my notes for Movement 11 consist of just a happy face. <laughs> That's all I got on there. <laughs> Look. See, see that? Instead of, instead of, and after all this anguish and, um, and stress, we get the joy of the promise in the book of Revelation, which is the lamb that was slain is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and praise and glory. This probably sounds familiar if you're used to hearing Handel's Messiah, because the final movement of Handel's Messiah has this text from Revelation in it as well. Here we have a glorious setting of this with trumpets and timpani. 
The only time the trumpets and timpani get used in this whole cantata is this final movement, and it is worth the wait. <laughs> Christian, I was telling you that, look, no shade on Handel, but like, I wish the last movement of the Messiah was actually this instead of what it is, because <laughs> I like this a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's a little more complex and interesting for me. Yeah. So that is a, a short little dip into the, the depths of complexity and emotion that come from this particular cantata, Ich hatte viel Bekümmernis. And as I said, we will touch on it again next week. And now, here's the opening of the oboe solo of the soprano aria. If this introduction to several musical moments from this cantata has inspired you to hear the rest, please see the link in the episode description. To hear the Netherlands Bach Society performance of this cantata, led by Shunsky Seto. To hear our new episodes as we release them, find us on your app and hit subscribe. Join us next week as we continue looking at this cantata, specifically two of the great choruses of this cantata, movements two and six. Until next time, enjoy those moments. <laughs>